Uh, we've already looked at the first part of chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, which teach uh, God's plan of salvation. Uh, we see that God wins against his enemies and that he saves his people. And then um, in the remaining verses on to chapter 13, we see that God changes his people and he cleanses his people. So let me read God's word uh, to you and then um, we'll ask his help in understanding it. This is the word of the Lord taken from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Him whom they have pierced, I will pour out, says the Lord, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by, them, by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I also will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Let's um, come before God. Um, he has spoken through his word to us tonight. Let's uh, pray for his help in understanding what he has said. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you speak and that you spoke through the prophet Zechariah, but that you also um, speak ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we uh, come to various parts of the Bible where the meaning of the text is just abundantly clear, but there are other parts of the Bible where we struggle to understand. Lord, 
give us understanding, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that will believe. And Lord, use this, uh, this word to change us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, I think that this passage really is about change. Uh, my sermon title is, He Was Pierced, Lives Were Changed. Now, what do you think about change? And do you like change? Do you hate change? Do you resist uh, change? Do you embrace change? What are your thoughts on change? I think it's uh, safe to say that there are two types of people in the world. There are those who, um, who love change, they embrace it, uh, and those who hate it. The people who love change, they're the kinds of people that, you know, they, when they go get their hair cut, they always come back with some different color. Pink, purple, blue, orange. And then there are those of us uh, here who struggle with change. And uh, that's why you're in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> change can be hard. And yet the Bible teaches that uh, God changes lives. Zechariah, the author of this book, lived through a period of great change. The Israelites had been living up north. They were scattered uh, among the, the Persian Empire where they lived for more than 70 years. Some of the Israelites didn't even know what uh, life outside of Persia was like. In the year 538, uh, the emperor of Persia, Cyrus, he, he makes this decree. And he gives the Jewish people permission to move back to their native homeland. But it wasn't that simple. For most Jewish people, Persia was home. Persia was the land that they had built their life. Persia was where all their family lived. So moving back to the promised land, to the city of Jerusalem, was a massive change. And so God sends prophets, multiple prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and he sends this group of prophets, these spiritual leaders, uh, and their job was to encourage God's people to move back to the promised land, to move back to Jerusalem. Zechariah was one of those prophets, and his mes message was a message of change, so that as the people were changing their location, Zechariah was calling on people to change their hearts, to return to the Lord, to repent, and to come back to Him in faith. And you'll remember at the beginning of, those, of this book, the, those important words that Zechariah says. He says, to these people, return to me, and I will return to you. So now we're nearing the end of the book, and in these last three, these last three chapters, we've been given this prophecy and the message of this prophecy is a message of change. And in this prophecy, Zechariah, Zechariah writes about three things. Uh, first, he writes about a, a day when God will change the world. And then second, he writes about a day when God will change hearts. And then third, he writes about a day when God will change lives. So why don't we uh, start off with chapter 13, and let's look at verses 7 to 9. Um, I'm going to jump around the text a little bit, but I want to start with the end of 13, verses 7 to 9. And, and then what we'll see here is that God has changed the world. How has He changed the world? 
He changed the world by sending Jesus into the world to die for our sins. That's how he changed the world. And we see that here in this chapter. Now, even though uh, Jesus has not yet been born, even though Jesus has not yet walked the face of this earth, even though Jesus has uh, not yet died, Zechariah knew that God would send Jesus to die for our sins. Now, how did he know that? Well, it's God told him in verse 7. Look at verse 7. God, there's this prophecy here in verse 7. It says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This is a reference, and I think we all know who this reference is about. It's about Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, the, the one who lays his life down for his sheep. 500 years ago, 500 years before Jesus was ever born, Zechariah is speaking of this shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 14. And in Mark, chapter 14, uh, verse 27, Jesus quotes some words from the Old Testament. These words from the Old Testament. In Mark 14, Judas has gone off and he has betrayed Jesus. His disciples and him are walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 27, and what does he say to them? In verse 27, he says, you will fall away. And immediately after, he decides to quote Zechariah chapter 13, and he says those exact words, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. See, these verses from the Old Testament are predicting, accurately predicting the future. They accurately predict that Jesus, our shepherd, would come to do what? That he would come to die. And then verse 7 predicts that the sword will be awakened against him, that he will be struck down, and that at the time of his death, his followers his disciples will scatter, which is exactly what happened at the time of Jesus' death. His disciples were nowhere to be found. And then we all know how the rest of the story unfolds after his crucifixion. Where was Jesus buried? In a tomb. And then on the third day, as we confess, he rose from the dead. And in this event, and this event, sorry, this event, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, would have a ripple effect on the nation of Israel. It would, it would divide an entire nation of people. God's chosen people would be divided on the identity of Jesus. And they would respond to his death and his resurrection in one of two ways. Either they would believe and they would embrace him, or they would reject him, as most people did. And we know the vast majority did reject him. Most of the Jewish people living that day wanted nothing to do with Jesus. The chief priests and the religious leaders, they, they would persecute his followers. They, they would, what, what would they do? They'd round his followers up, they'd stone them, and they'd imprison them. But a growing minority, they would believe, right? They would trust that this Savior was who he said he was, that he really rose from the dead. 
And if you look here in Zechariah, now back in Zechariah, verses 8 and 9, we see what? We see that the whole land is divided. Two-thirds shall be cut off from God's people, and one-third shall be left alive. The, the, the majority, the broad path, the, the crowd, the mob, they would be cut off from the people of Israel. They were divided. They rejected Jesus, and they would be cut off from God's people. And the minority who believed, the minority, as verse 9 who says, are refined by fire and tested by, as, as if they were gold, they will call on His name, and God will answer them, and God will call them His people. And so a minority, the narrow path, they would believe in Jesus, and they would be saved. And this event, we know, changed the world forever. I want to share with you a quote, because it's an important thing to say that Jesus really did change the world forever. And one man said this, he said, regardless of what you personally think or believe about Jesus, Jesus did change the world. Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in Western history for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse him and in his name that millions pray. Uh, isn't it amazing just to think that, that one man could change the world in the way that he did? I want to share another quote. For, uh, this one's from a guy named J. Warner Wallace. And he asks this question. And he says this, how is it that Jesus impacted the world in the way that he did? After all, Jesus was born in a tiny, irrelevant town in the Roman Empire. He was raised in a small village. He had to walk uh, from one place to the next. Um, he had no resources, none of the resources that we have. He had no social media platform, no podcast, no audience, no clever videos, no website. He never held political office. Uh, he never ruled a nation. He never led an army. He never authored a, a book. Uh, I guess he authored the Bible. But uh, public opinion turned against him. Most of his followers abandoned him. One disciple betrayed him. Another denied him. He was rejected by the religious, hunted by the powerful, mocked and unjustly persecuted by his enemies. He suffered an unfair trial. He was publicly humiliated brutally beaten, and unduly executed. Even then, the few followers who remained had to borrow a grave to bury him. And yet, this is the man who changed history, who has changed the, the, the day of the Jewish Sabbath, who changed the dates of our calendar and forever transformed the most important and revered aspects of human culture. How is it possible that a single man like Jesus could have this much of an impact. And yet he does. He changed the world. And he changed, more importantly, he changed lives. It was because of Jesus that prostitutes became uh, Christians, that they exchanged the brothel for a church pew. Uh, it was because of Jesus that pagan priests became a Christian pastors. It was because of Jesus that persecutors of the church, like the Apostle Paul, became the, the greatest defenders and missionaries of the church. It was because of Jesus 
that slave traders like John Newton became hymn writers. He transformed lives. It is true that Jesus changed the world. But here is a more, much, much more uh, important question that I want to ask you tonight. Has he changed you? That's the question we need to ask and answer. Has he changed you? And that leads me to that second point. Has he changed your heart? I want to come back to uh, chapter 12, verses 10 to 13, because what we see in these verses is a change of heart. You might notice in these verses that there are this, this like, large number of people, and what are they doing? They're mourning. They're grieving. Um, we see here that the grief that they are experiencing is intense. Uh, Zechariah tells us it's a, it's a kind of grief that most people haven't experienced before. Some have, but he says it's the kind of grief that someone has when they lose a child. And so this is not ordinary grief. And he says that the entire nation is grieving. And he, he references this story here. And it's a true story in Israel's history. I, I doubt that you've, well, maybe you've heard this story. Some of you have not heard this story, but it's taken from 2 Chronicles 35. And, and the story describes this day when the entire nation of Israel grieves King Josiah. Josiah was a good king, and he had been at war at a, uh, in a place called Megiddo, and he was pierced by an arrow. And, and his death left the entire nation shocked and grieved. Zechariah references this story in verses 11 to 13 to kind of describe the kind of grief that the nation of Israel experienced. Now, what is it that causes this grief? Verse 10 tells us, they are grieving the God whom they pierced. And it actually says not that they pierced a man, it actually, the Lord says, it is me who you pierced. On that day, you will pierce me. And they are grieving the God whom they pierced. And this is a reference, obviously, to Jesus, the God-man, who stretched out his arms on the cross and whose hands were pierced by nails. And we know that Zechariah is talking about Jesus. How do we know that? Well, Joel read John 19 earlier in the service. You saw it in Joel 19, this, this scene where, where Jesus is hanging from the cross, his hands and feet pierced by nails. He's already breathed his last breath. The soldier comes around, what does he do? He breaks the legs of, of the guy on his right and the guy on his left. He doesn't break Jesus' legs. Why? To fulfill Scripture. And then what does he do? What does he do? He takes a spear and he thrusts it into Jesus' side. And water and blood flow out. And then John says, in verse 37, these things happened. Why? So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That, that when you're reading your Old Testament as a Jewish person, 
you might be able to read the Old Testament and say, and then compare that to the life of Jesus and say, this man was the Messiah that Zechariah spoke about. John says, and as the scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now again, let me ask the question again, why are these people grieving? Well, they grieve because they pierced Jesus. They killed Jesus. They lifted up their voices against Jesus. You remember the scene from God's, John's Gospel. The, the crowd was shouting, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. The, the crowd put him on a cross. And now they've come to realize what they've done. And they, they realize here the weight and the gravity of their sin. They've, they've killed their Messiah. And they've killed their King. Now let me ask you. Why are these people grieving? What changed in their hearts? Because as, as you read John's Gospel, you'll, you, you read the, the account of the crucifixion and you see what? You see this angry mob and what are they doing? They're calling for the death of Jesus. But then later, we see that many of these people, perhaps even some of the same people who were yelling crucify him, what are they doing? They're bowing down to him. They're worshiping him. They're following him. They're serving him. What changed? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is one of these famous uh, passages uh, where God's Spirit is poured out on the church. People are speaking in different languages that they could never speak in before. I won't go into all that. But Acts chapter 2 tells us about the day of Pentecost. Fifty days had passed since the death of Jesus. And so much took place over those 50 days. Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. He ascended into heaven. And on the first day of Pentecost, people are gathering uh, to celebrate the holiday. They're meeting in Jerusalem. Um, most of them have come from long distances. They spoke different languages. Many of them may have uh, been at the crucifixion. During the celebration of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter gets up and he preaches one of his first sermons. And it's a powerful sermon. It's a confronting sermon. And he presses this cold, hard truth to the people who needed to hear it. Most of them Jewish people. And he says to them, you, you crucified Jesus. You killed him. It was, he died because of your sin. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. You crucified Jesus. And in that moment, God's spirit did an incredible thing. He softened the hearts of people who were listening to that sermon. And something changed. Their hearts. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. And believe. Meaning, turn away from sin. Repent. And they did. And how did they do it? Well, they did it with the, 
with the help of God's Spirit who had been poured out into their hearts on the day of Pentecost. Many walked into that sermon on that day, maybe some of them unbelieving. They left converted. They left their lives transformed and changed by this message. 500 years before any of this actually took place, Zechariah gives us a glimpse of this this day that we call Pentecost. And in verse 10, he says, God will pour out His Spirit on the inhabitants of Jerusalem in a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy uh, will fill them so that when they look on Him who they pierce, they shall mourn for Him. So Zechariah sees change. He doesn't see people pulling up their bootstraps and saying, oh, I'm going to do better. What does he see? He sees change, spirit-wrought change. He sees the Holy Spirit changing hearts and lives. Whenever we are confronted by the message of the cross, we are faced with only one of two responses. We can either respond with indifference. So what? Why does it matter? Why should I care? What does Jesus' death have to do with anything anyways? And some people respond this way. They go about living their lives and nothing changes. That's one response. And then there's another response. Perhaps that response happens, uh, you're reading your Bible at home or maybe you're sitting in church. The pastor is preaching, the sermon is boring, the sermon is engaging, the sermon is somewhere in between, we don't know. You might almost be sleeping. You might be on the edge of your seat. But then at some point in the sermon, the pastor does what every single pastor should do. He takes you to the cross. And he shows you from the Bible the crucified Savior. And you listen carefully to the account of his death, his punishment, his burial, and his resurrection. And what happens? God opens your eyes. His Spirit changes your mind. For your entire life, you didn't see any reason to follow this man, and now you do. You realize something that you've never realized before, that you have sinned against God and that you need His grace. And you understand it with clarity that your sin is the reason Christ came into the world. And it's the reason He chose to die. And as you listen, you are overwhelmed by God's grace that He would die for you so that your debt to God might be settled and that your sins might be forgiven. Your mind changes because God has changed your mind. And there are so many stories of this that I could share with you. Take someone like the Apostle Paul. Again, this guy who is the, the greatest persecutor of the church. He hates Christians. He hates the church. All he wants to do is tear the church down. He's hell-bent on destroying Christ and his church. And then he meets Jesus. And this man whose life 
was dedicated to destroying the church becomes its greatest missionary. How does that happen? It happens because God's Spirit opened up his eyes when he met Jesus. And this is what God does. This is how God works. He doesn't work through methods. He doesn't work through eloquent speakers. I mean, eloquent speakers are great, but it's not the eloquent speaker that saves people. God saves people, and He does it according to His own will. We are simply called to share with people what we know about Jesus and what happened on the cross. That's what we are called to do. And we leave the rest up to God. I can't change people. You can't change people. God's Spirit is the one who changes hearts and lives. And He uses us, even our stuttering words, even our imperfect preaching. He uses those things to bring people to faith. Isn't that encouraging to know that that you might actually mess up your words as you share the gospel with someone and God might still use that? That even if you stutter, God might use that to bring people to faith? It's because His Spirit is working. And that's incredible. But it's not just minds and hearts that Jesus changes. And this is my third point. God also changes lives. This next part of the passage speaks of that. You know, last year I decided to make a few life changes. I started eating less sugar, less chocolate. I decided to give Vegemite a chance for once. And I decided to change my mind about Vegemite. I was determined to try Vegemite. And, um, and well, after I changed my mind about Vegemite, there was a change in lifestyle. Now I started eating Vegemite shapes and Vegemite uh, scrolls and even a little bit of Vegemite on toast. But you see, when you change your mind about something, there are results, there are implications. When you believe in something, usually and almost always, your life follows. You can't be a Christian and not follow Christ. You can't believe in the gospel and not live out the gospel in daily life. When God changes your heart, your life will inevitably change as well. So that when we come to believe in Jesus, when we come to repent of our sin, there will be some life changes that follow. And I should note that these life changes are not something that we just produce in ourselves. It is the working of God's Spirit in our hearts. It is God that changes us. Some of us very slowly. Some of us, it takes ages. Little changes here and there and everywhere for a while. For some of us, it's dramatic. But nevertheless... It is God who's doing the change, the work of change in our hearts. And, um, and we see here in verses 10 to 14, the results of God's work, that, um, that the nation of, of Israel here in this prophecy will be tr- changed and transformed by this spirit of grace. Now, in verses 10 to 14, what do you notice about those verses? you're looking at your Bibles right now. 
You won't know what I'm talking about if you don't look at your Bibles. <laughs> but the first thing I notice here in verse, um, in, uh, sorry, not 10 to 14, chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Um, in verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1, we see a fountain. And what kind of fountain is this? It's not the kind of fountain that you might see in the park um, with fancy statues. This is a different kind of fountain. In Zechariah's day, this kind of fountain would have been a natural spring, a fresh-flowing body of water. And Zechariah lived in an era where there was no plumbing. Uh, people relied on fountains, these natural springs, to cleanse themselves of dirt and filth and, that had accumulated over the week. I'm so glad that I live in the 21st century. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Zechariah says a day is coming when God's people will be washed. And he's referring not to the removal of dirt, but to the removal of sin. When, when Christ, a day is coming when Christ will cleanse you of your sin through his death. That's what he's referring to here. Uh, he, he's, in one sense, referring to the forgiveness of your sins, but he's also referring to the slow change uh, in your life, to the removal of sin over time, that God is not only, has not only forgiven us, but he is cleansing and cleaning up our lives day by day. Uh, in, New, in the New Testament, uh, baptism is, is a symbol of the, of the same thing, it's a symbol of God's cleansing work. And in baptism, uh, the water of baptism symbolizes cleansing, uh, the cleansing of sin. So let's let look at verses 2 and 6. We see that God is, uh, has, a, has decided to cleanse His people, and then He's going to change His people. He's going to clean house. And there are a few things as He cleans house here in this chapter, verses 2 to, th 2 to 6, there are a few things that He decides to chuck in the rubbish bin. What are those things? Can you pick them out? The first one is idolatry. Thanks. Idolatry. False worship. Idolatry. The second one is false teaching. False prophets. And then uh, the third one is false living. And in verse 2, he cleans up false, false worship. We see that day is coming when he'll get rid of all these idols. He'll cleanse the heart and the land of their idols. And then in verses 3 to 6, I'll give a brief explanation of these verses. He cleanses the land of false prophets. Now, in our day, you might say that the false prophets of the 21st century are those guys and girls, some of them, who like drive fancy cars or fly jets or they have some kind of TV program or some kind of book deal. Um, in the ancient world, uh, false prophets were much scarier looking. Uh, they wore animal skins that were, you know, they would, they would wear these uh, hairy, uncomfortable, um, hairy cloaks, as we see here in the text. And they would take part in rituals where they would cut themselves. And so they'd often have scars all over their bodies. And verse 3 tells us how, first, God will in a coming day, eliminate the false prophets from the land, and then, uh, fearing 
God's cleansing work, these false prophets will try to hide. And they will disguise themselves as farmers. And they will deny that they are even prophets. And they will be ashamed of their false prophecies. And so, ultimately, the message here is that God will eliminate um, false teaching in that day. And then in verse 2, we see that God will cleanse the land of impurity. And ultimately, as I explain the text here, this message is that God is going to cleanse His people. He is going to change and transform their hearts and their minds and their lives and their beliefs and their worship. Everything about them is going to change. They are going to be a new creation in God's sight. The old will pass away. The new will come. And so if I can summarize this message, I know a lot of it is it's quite dense and maybe somewhat confusing, but I think if we were to look at this chapter from a bird's eye view, what do we see? God changes people, and He changes lives, and He does it through the power of His Spirit. Now, as we think about this text, I want to conclude with uh, just a point of application. Are you ready for it? You might be ready for the conclusion. But are you ready for the point of application? Because that's what you need to hear before the conclusion. The point of application is that we all need to change. And we all know that we need to change. And we all know that we're going to change. It changes inevitable, isn't it? Um, our, age, our age will change. Our status in life will change. Our kids will change. Our jobs will change. Our relationships might change. Our feelings might change. Our future might change. Life is filled with change. And all of us understand this. But let me ask you this. When it comes to sin, when it comes to those parts of your life that are stubborn, when it comes to those parts of your life that are hidden, when it comes to the words you say, when it comes to the ways that you interact with others, when it comes to the way that you spend your money, when it comes to the things that you love, when it comes to the things that you feel or the things that you believe, do you see a need for change? Or would you rather things just stay the way they are? The Bible calls on us to change. This chapter calls on us to change. It calls on us to mourn our sin, to turn our hearts and our minds, to turn every aspect of our life to Jesus Christ. And if we're being honest with ourselves, that seems like an impossible task. Because none of us are able to do this in our own strength. None of us are able to do this perfectly. And we don't do it perfectly. And we struggle to do this. But the beautiful thing about God's grace, and we've been told here that God pours out His Spirit of grace on us. The beautiful thing about God's grace is that He always supplies what He requires. He never commands something that He is unwilling to help us with. It's true that God calls us to change. But don't forget, He's the one who promises to change us. And He's powerful. And He can accomplish that change. So the question is, where will you start? Well, tonight you'll start at the cross. And you'll come to Jesus with all of your sins again. And you'll repent, and you'll put your faith in Him. 
for forgiveness and for grace. And then you will say to your pierced Savior, Lord, I need your help. In the words of Newton, you might say, Lord, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I might add to this, so Lord, change me into the man, the woman, that you want me to be. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we recognize that um, change can be difficult, that turning away from our sin, that repentance can be incredibly challenging. But Lord, we know that you call on us to change, to identify those sins of the heart that need to be conformed to you and to your word. And Lord, we know that you will supply that which you require, that we don't change ourselves, Lord, but that you change us. So Lord, we pray for each soul in this room that you would uh, change each and every single one of us, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So we pray it in his name. Amen.